I have this great business. I'm like, that's brutal, man. You think it's really good. So the first advice I give people is that if you think you have a good opportunity in front of you, the first thing you do is go to strangers, you pitch the idea. You can't keep talking to mom, dad, brother, good friend that would never tell you anything other than you're great. The second thing is, and this is the best advice I was ever given, ever. Every, every entrepreneur is to hear this one. We were getting ready to start, we're about a weekend before we made the big trip down. He said, he said, listen to this. As an entrepreneur, you are only as good as you invoice and collect. If you can't do that, you're starting an expensive hobby. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. In this episode, we speak with Rick West and dive deep into pretty much all Seven Hats as we follow his triumphant journey from a holler in Eastern Kentucky to the boardroom as a tech titan. Rick is a serial entrepreneur whose focus on technology and innovation in the consumer packaged goods space led him to birth Field Agent, an on-demand platform focused on retail, connecting brands with everyday shoppers to provide real-time field marketing data. Rick is a husband of one, father of three, granddaddy of two, mentor to many, and an overall stand-up guy that I admire. If you resonate with Rick's life quote that goes like this, don't live in a world of maybe, let your yes be yes, and your no be no, then let's welcome Rick to the Seven Hats. Rick, welcome to the Seven Hats. Hey, you all, listen, I have been looking forward to this for so long. Thanks for having me. Of course. You know, Rick, by all measures, you're a successful entrepreneur. The Chinese have a saying, may you live in interesting times. And from what I know of your story, you've lived in interesting times. You have a lot of stories. And since there is so much I want to ask, I'd like to just get right into it, if that's okay with you. Perfect. Okay. First question is, where were you born and how was your childhood? Yeah, I tell people that I, I was uh, not born and raised in eastern Kentucky. I was bo- born in the Bethesda Naval, Naval Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, pr- pretty quickly after uh, my birth father divorced with my mom, uh, she moved when I was just a few weeks old back to Appalachia. So I grew up, for all intents and purposes, in a holler in eastern Kentucky. Grew up there with my mom and brother and mom and dad and uh, had a great upbringing. I tell people, you've all that um, it's that nice little combination of hillbilly elegy <laughs> and Friday night lights. Uh, so if you're a, a book reader, two great books. If you're a movie watcher, listen, J.D. Vance did a great job with hillbilly elegy and Ron Howard took the book and created an amazing movie. But if you look at how those things play out in both cases, it really was just this interesting you know, time, you know, birth to 18 of growing up in a culture 
that really sticks with you, the culture that made me who I am today, that sticks with me. But knowing growing up in a holler that you could see daylight between 10 and 3 because the sun went over the mountains, you know, when it came up and went down, uh, all the way through uh, having that lineage of, of coal miners in your background. My dad worked on the railroad for 37 years, and mm-hmm. uh, his dad had a little bit of coal mining in him. My mom's dad did, had a little bit of black lung in there. My brother still works in the coal mines today. His younger brother, great man, very proud of him. But listen, he's mining metallurgical coal so that we can have steel processed. I mean, so that's part of who I am, who I was growing up. But I tell people that story in that I am who I am today through the culture. But if you met me for the first time, you'd never know or think that I grew up in the head of a holler in Eastern Kentucky. But it is very much who I am today. Wow. You know, from my limited exposure mostly from Lisa Ling's reporting, <laughs> Appalachia is some of the most beautiful, like you said, and most desperate countryside in the U.S. On one hand, you got the Great Smokies. And on the other hand, you have a terrible epidemic of joblessness and I believe substance abuse. I recall you mentioning once that there was also some substance abuse within your family. Is that correct? No, no. In my case, uh, I'm one of the rare people that when you hear the stories of hillbilly elegy mm-hmm. and, you, and you watch that movie, that I did not have substance abuse. Now, well, the, the tough part was is that my dad was an alcoholic. Everyone's best friend was not violent, just, but he ended up dying um, in his 60s of cirrhosis of the liver. Mm. And, you know, my dad drank with all my friends and everyone, you know, from the time I remember growing up, everyone had a beer in their hand. And so, I think the analogy that people use from 60s and 70s when I grew up versus the, the, the way people would, would numb today is that you can drink alcohol for 40, 50 years and it may kill you, but substance abuse can be 40, 50 days and you're dead. Mm. And so I grew up in that era of time that a lot of alcohol, a lot of drinking, but very much social part of the fiber. Uh, but in my case, I always felt that was different. Part of it was my faith. The other aspect, I, I thought I was going to be a pro football player, but I was, you know, 50 pounds too light, six inches too short, but man, I thought I could do it. So I wanted every advantage I could have to be healthy, focused, be able to perform, and and really just didn't want to go down that path. But it was all around me. All of my buddies are, are drinking and partying all the time because what are you going to do after working hard day? You're going to sit down with your buddies and drink and kind of just numb yourself. And so there's a lot of that around me. Now, on the other side of things, uh, the question is, how are you going to get out, right? I mean, how are you going to pursue? And then there's really a couple of facets. There's education or there's sports. I knew I wasn't going to make it in sports. Uh, I knew education was going to be the route for me and made it to the University of Kentucky. And uh, after a year of struggling as this little hillbilly in a very preppy world. Now, you've all these are the days where uh, the guys had three polo shirts flipped up, <laughs> mattress shorts. It was just, and I'm this kid that's going to university, and I had a Who concert T-shirt, I had a football jersey, a baseball jersey, a pair of jeans, and white high-top Converse tennis shoes, and I'm in a world of preppiness and button downs, and and so I realized it didn't fit up. And so, so one life lesson that I learned, this is for your listeners, is that I believe that success really follows the path and depths of relationships. Hmm. And for me, on my, the, as a freshman on this floor, uh, have my, my twangy accent, the way I dressed, I had a group of guys that really came around me and 
respected me and loved me and encouraged me for who I was. And and most of them had joined fraternities. Now, Yuval, I was not a fraternity guy. I watched Animal House, and I didn't want either one of those, right? But I made a really good good group of guys, and I thought, well, I could do this. And this this friend of mine, Mark King, and I'll never forget Mark, he pulled me aside. He said, Rick, we, we've got to... We've got to do something about how you dress. I said, okay. So he took me to the mall and think of the uh, kind of like a Macy's. This at the time it was called like doll hairs. He took me to the mall and bought me a pair of Bass Weijin shoes, fantastic loafers, right? Uh, a pair of duckhead khakis, which are fantastic. A white button down, a blue button down, a blue blazer and two ties. And he said, okay, with this, you'll be able to go through the process and end up in, in the Greek system. Had I not had an 18-year-old boy in college take another 18-year-old boy in college to the mall to go shop, Yvonne, I wouldn't be where I am today. And that, so those relationships of having someone come alongside you to say, you need to dress differently. I mean, I could fast forward to uh, getting ready to interview and people saying, gosh, you're mispronouncing these words and your twang is too tight. You need to enunciate. And you need to not use those words or you're never going to get hired. And that's really hard You've all, for someone to say, you just can't talk that way and you can't dress that way. And so that was my early upbringing to get out. But once I get out, the, the, the story had just begun because I needed relationships to help me grow as a young man to, pr- to proceed in my career. Yeah. And we'll, we'll touch upon relationships in a second. So you're kind of a, the oddball, right? Out of a place where most of the country has no idea even exists. And you're going into a university, which basically is a melting pot from all over the country. And now you're not really fitting in. But going back to your parents and family members, did they want you to be in the coal mining business? Did they want you? Because it's kind of hard taking a chance leaving when you know you're going to have a salary. It was difficult. So let's use uh, let's use peers. So I'm uh, a senior in high school. I'm graduating in May, and I had several friends saying it was Ricky at the time. I'm Rick, but I'm, it was Ricky. So Ricky, help me understand. Uh, you're going to go to college, pay for four years of college, and you're going to hope to make eighteen, twenty thousand dollars a year. You're going to hope you make that. This is back in the '80s. He said, Ricky, right now I'm making forty thousand dollars a year. 2x what you're ever going to make. I've already got a brand new Corvette. I got a brand new motorcycle. And I'm already living in this double wide trailer up here on this piece of property. You're nuts. You're, 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 it makes no sense at all. Now, for my dad, you know, he looked at it as like, listen, you need a good job. You could come work on the railroad. You're smart. You could progress up. But both of them wanted me and my brother to go out uh, and to get the education. I'm a first generation guy to get an education in my family. My brother just, he said, school's not for me. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stay here. He worked, for a mining, he worked for a mining supply company, then an oil company, and then eventually started working in the mines. But it's very much a, a proud job. It's a proud way of the culture to be a part of that. Of course. Uh, but my mom and dad wanted me to, to move on if I could. The problem was that first year, I thought, I am way over my head. I'm, I was so, I made all A's in high school, a couple of B's that we could talk about that I didn't deserve. That's another story <laughs> for another day. But, but I get into college and realize in chemistry, in the first week, they covered everything that I'd covered in high school. In, in calculus, the, in the first two weeks, they covered everything that I covered. And all of my other friends in those classes, it was almost like a, a refresher course. I was so far behind. 
didn't know how to study, culturally was trying to get accepted in that. And so the family wanted me to go. But after that first semester, I really thought I was just going to quit and go back and get a job in the mines and get a job on the railroad. I didn't think I could make it. What stopped you from quitting? Part of it goes back to the culture. I'd never quit anything in my life. And I finally realized, you know, you may kick me out. You may tell me I can't come back, but I am not going to quit. I'm going to, I'm going to make a go of this. And thank goodness I did. The next semester was great. I ended up meeting my wife there. I mean, the fraternity, it, but it, it gets like those pivotal times in your life where you realize everything's falling apart. All the pressure's there. It was so comfortable at home. Just move right back in. I'm the guy, the captain of the football team. I mean, everyone knew me. You go, it's like the cheers bar, right? You go in and everyone knows who you are to go back into that big entity, that big machine, because I yeah. just wasn't going to let it beat me. I was not going to quit. So you were, you were a big fish in a small pond. All of a sudden you found oh, yourself in a big, in a big pond. What was the impetus to succeed? Was it just hard work? Because obviously you weren't as qualified as some of the other students who came in and that was a big mountain to climb. So, and I think if I would guess, I think your answer is going to be related to why you're so successful now or have been so successful. But the question is, what was it that got you to that next level, to got you, got you to stay in school and not get kicked out? Well, what I started to realize, and it, it was really about the second semester, is that once you started getting into some of the classes that weren't weed out classes, and you're actually having conversations, and it's the old adage of, gosh, you know, bless that guy's heart. He couldn't get out of the rain if he, you know, if he had to. I mean, it just like, oh, my gosh. I started to realize I was just as competent. I was just as smart. I just didn't have 18 years of preparation. But it took me to have some non-classroom interaction to realize not only can I hang with these guys, I don't know how they're getting out of the rain. I mean, I I realized that that all the 18 years of preparing me to be a get-it-done guy, the work ethic associated with it, you know, that the fact that you had no fear, you could take on any any you could take on anything. I started to feel the momentum and I realized, oh, it's just the preparation. If I lowered my head, I can do this. Now, the problem was, by the time I figured that out, I really didn't have good study habits, didn't understand it. When my 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 girlfriend, now wife, came to school, really kind of had that heart-to-heart with me saying, you got to start studying. You can't just study the night before. You have to start prepping. And I had a professor starting to pour into me saying, you've got it, but you're not really putting in the effort I mean, think about you, Val. I'd never taken a final in high school because I aced everything. Why take a final? Yeah. And so now all of a sudden you, you're, you're having this culmination of work over three months and they're testing what I've learned. I realized I didn't learn anything. I just passed it. And so this, this realization of, wow, this is going to make a difference long term. I really need to start studying and preparing. And then I started treating it in my head. And again, this is just the football guy. I could tell you every mannerism every play, exactly what was happening before the next football game, because I watched film when I was, a, I was a student. I said, my goodness, I can treat class the same way. So I just had a different kind of that light bulb switched, and I got confidence again. It was really the first time in my life that I didn't have confidence to say, I'm the guy, I can do this, I have no fear. I was feeling the pressure, and I really had a confidence issue, and it just started to turn that second semester. By the third semester of my sophomore year, I was on. I was in, I had confidence again, I'm driving home. I'd been home all day, all, all summer long working uh, on a mining supply truck, which reinforced why I didn't want to go back home. I had new impetus and I really started driving things home. Wow. So 
you got college under control, you're ready to graduate. What were your job prospects like at that time? And how did you land a preeminent consumer goods company like PNG? Did did you know anything about CPG at that time? Did anybody warn you about this industry? No. So, so here's the, that tells you how old I am. I, I know I look really young on the screen. If people could see me, you're listening, if you can just see me how young Rick really is. Um, but it was in the days we get it's pre-internet and the internet wasn't around 30 years ago, right? You couldn't just Google PNG. And um, what I also realized was I didn't really understand even what the interview process was going to look like. But it goes back to that relationship piece. I had a fraternity brother that was wicked smart, great GPA, nailed everything, got a job at PNG. And uh, he was our president. He came back in for a visit and he said, you know, you'd be perfect for PNG. Here's what they're looking for. Natural born leaders, people have variety of skills, multiple jobs, great GPA. Now, in those days, I had three GPAs, you've all ready, three. I had an overall GPA of 3.0. I went from engineering to business. So I had a business GPA of 3.5. But in my major, I had a 4.0. Wow. And so when I pitched to PNG, I had three GPAs listed, which was, they said he'd never, ever seen a three GPA guy before. They had three GPAs. But through that relationship, he said, you know, you should, you know, send an application. I'm like, well, what do I do? He literally sent me a form in the mail. I hand wrote on the form, mailed it into this corporate machine. And because of a letter of recommendation from him, they said, hey, um, why don't you drive up for an interview? It was an hour and a half away. So I'm here in a blue blazer and khakis. I have to go buy a wool suit. I've got to go buy wingtips. I mean, oh my goodness. <laughs> I, seriously, I had to buy wingtips. I had to buy a pinpoint cotton shirt that would starch up, and I had to buy a red tie. So I had my interview suit ready. I had to go buy a brief, I didn't have a briefcase. I had a backpack, bought a briefcase. I had all my materials ready to go, and I go up for this interview. So I'm talking to the guy. We interview. He said, wow, it looks really good. I did the whole three GPA thing. He's shocked. Uh, he said, hey, what if you've got a little bit more time, why don't you talk to so-and-so? So I talked to the next guy. Hour later, he said, wow, great interview. Wait five minutes. He came back and said, hey, um, are you free for lunch? I'm like, sure, I'm free for lunch. Why not stay for lunch? He said, well, hey, before lunch, we've got this little test. Would you mind taking this test? I'm like, test? He's like, oh, it's, it's nothing. I, I mean, you've all had no idea. I'm completely blind, right? So I go in, take this hour-long test. I'm like, it felt like an ACT test. I'm smart enough. Came back and said, wow, hey, nice job on the test. So let's go to lunch. I go to lunch with these three guys. And hey, are, do you have this? I'm sure I got this afternoon free. So I ended up talking to these two director level guys. And now we're into the day. And I've got the HR guy who manages everything, who makes the decision, says, okay, uh, give us your receipts for the hotel. We're going to reimburse you. Thanks for spending the day with us. And so I gave him these receipts. He's like, you stayed at the Holiday Inn? I'm like, sure I did. <laughs> and he looks over at the the business guy's like, didn't we put him in the Omni in a suite? And he's like, no. He's like, so why did you? I said, well, it's my money. you know. And so I drove up and stayed the Holiday Inn. I drove in early. I got breakfast early, so I knew I was going to be here on time. And he's like, I cannot believe we put you through this process. And so he gave me back my $36, and I kind of went back in. So I get a phone call that night from my fraternity brother. He's like, Rick, you nailed it. I said, nailed what? He said, you went through an entire six-month recruiting process in one day. Wow. I said, well, how'd that work? He said, well, th they loved you in the interview. You scored one of the highest ever on the test. The directors loved your storytelling. You're an amazing storyteller. And then the fact that you got your own hotel room, he said, Rick, you're going to get an offer. Then next week, I had an offer for $24,000. I mean, crazy money. Now, that entire story 
kind of matches up my life. I've never applied for a job that I didn't have someone tell me, you should apply for this because we're going to hire you. From my paper job to the mining supply job to my, my fraternity scenario, my job on campus, PNG, it was always this right time, right place. But I performed really well. And all that performance came into being confident, being at ease, being the storyteller, having a good enough GPA, everything in front of you. And the next thing you know, I'm working for P&G. I just knew they sold Tide and Crest. I had no idea what P&G did. Wow. So how long did you stay at P&G? 17 years. Your salary was, was more than 21000 that was predicted as you when you were... <laughs> Back in Appalachia? <laughs> More than it's predicted, which is good. But I guess what's important in that, that scenario, 17 years of PNG, 10 of that was in the U.S. Uh, a pivotal moment for me was going international. So I worked two years in Hong Kong and a year in Bangkok. And the expat assignment was taking me from a corporate world of cubicles in Cincinnati to kind of the wild, wild west in Asia. And I became an entrepreneur all over again, really on PNG's dime. Because I had from a territory from South Korea down to Australia, working across those territories. Uh, it was new, new business for PNG to be in those markets around from, from a customer's perspective, working with multinationals. So it was just craziness. And I learned a ton there. So that was one of the most pivotal moments of my corporate career was those three years in Asia. And what was the catalyst for your move into entrepreneurship? I mean, didn't anybody warn you about being an entrepreneur? Well, they did, <laughs> you know, and that's the hard part. So, so for me, once I went uh, into Asia, spent some time, I knew there was no way I was going to go back to the corporate rigors. And people had told me, be careful going international because there's a decent chance you'll go work for another company or you're going to quit when you get back. And that was so true. I mean, you just had this, this adrenaline rush every day. Just again, you're in Malaysia one day and you're in, Bangkok the next. It was just, it's craziness. And people really needed you and you could impact change. I mean, you weren't pushing a little peanut. It's major change. And what I realized coming back in is I had a couple other friends, uh, a guy by the name of Henry Ho and Bill Waitsman, who were with PNG. And PNG was looking for a couple thousand volunteers, primarily expats, to take a package and move on. Really? Uh, my wife worked for PNG as well. She was on a spousal leave with me. And, you know, we were praying about this and said, gosh, if if we both get a chance to ask for packages, why don't we give it a shot? And so sure enough, we said, we're not really sure that we want to do this, but let's at least make the effort, okay? At least make the effort and see if they're going to offer. And they did. And when they offered us the package, it was a one-year salary plus medical, et cetera. And what we did, we used the company's package to be angel money for our startup. Of course, yeah. And then from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I had kind of, a couple of different paths, but the path I chose was to continue to take the foundation of 17 years within C, uh, CPG and the retail corporate America that I was in and to build upon that foundation. So at least when I was engaging someone, I had amazing credentials, PNG. I had the international experience. I had the 17 years of corporate experience associated with it. So we built the entrepreneurial machine that we were, we were driving. We built it upon our 17 years. And so that gave us a leg up as well. And who thought of the new company and what was the company called? The original company was called North Star. And mm -hmm. it was a shopper marketing company that helped CPG companies sell into Walmart and other retailers from a shopping standpoint, a shopper standpoint. Uh, eventually, it was a shopper 
marketing them with Shopper Research. At one point in time, Yuval is managing five LLCs, distribution, brokerage, marketing, research. And all these were entities of selling into a Walmart or a Walgreens or a Target, but they weren't large enough to hire a major agency. And so we were working with the Fortune 100 to 500, not the Fortune 1 to 100. And as it started to drive, what we realized around 2009, everything to scale this entrepreneurial business was all driven by where's Rick, where's Henry, where's Rick, where's Henry. Mm -hmm. We had to show up because they were waiting on us to consult, be the creative, to drive something. So it's really hard to scale. We had about 30 people at the time. But in order to scale this type of business, you had to hire pretty high-level folks to scale again. So really difficult to to make that happen. And what we realized in 2009, uh, the iPhone 3S had just come out. Those are crazy days. This is pre-selfie days. So no front-facing camera, no video on the phone. And we were sitting around a table saying, I wonder if anyone's using this new iPhone to capture data inside of stores. And at that point in time, we're literally flying all over the U.S., Canada, capturing data, interviewing people in stores, and no one was was doing that. And we sat down and said, you know, we're going to be like the guys that said they invented Instagram, but we're just too busy to do it. We're going to look like fools at a party in about a year when someone else comes up with the idea of capturing data with a phone. So we started working nights and weekends again. We, We had been an entrepreneur for nine years, running five LLCs. And we started working nights and weekends again to launch this thing called Field Agent. And we became the first app on iTunes to pay cash. That's hard to believe today that's the case, but you could get points, you could get badges, and we paid you cash. And we were the first app on iTunes to use metadata and geolocation to qualify data. It was almost like Asia again, the wild, wild west of mobile technology within retail. And then we realized we could actually scale this. Uh, They didn't need Rick in the room, Rick who? It really was a technology that could scale. And so 12 years later, we're in seven other countries, 2 million downloads, and we're just driving this machine of this retail marketplace called Field Agent. So same co-founders moved on with you? Uh, No, we had um, called a breakup or divorce. Uh, Bill decided to move on to another avenue to kind of go down a different path. Henry and I have stayed together. Uh, We've been entrepreneurs together for 20 years and friends for almost 40. So he's a co-founder of co-founder. Uh, that's correct. A field agent. So back in North Star, did you sell it off? What what happened with North Star? Did it just dissolve? It was interesting. So two of the LLCs had other owners in them. Uh, so one was kind of sold off. A little bit of sold off. One we had a key employee that wanted to take the business. We got rid of two, and the research firm my wife was running. And so Field Agent eventually acquired my wife, which is always interesting to tell folks uh, we made that acquisition. So she was acquired, research came in naturally, the other pieces kind of over here. So we had a couple of small sales, but the really big one was the research company that Kim was a part of. Mm-hmm. And so Northstar, was it a success, uh, an overnight success right away or? Yeah, so we were a uh, 10 days in to one of the most colossal events that could happen. So we, we started the business. Um, I left overseas. We came back and we just adopted our youngest child uh, from China. I had two birth children, Sarah, and so we're moving in. I said, "Hun, I've got no car, no house, no job, but daddy's going to take care of you as we come into Northwest Arkansas. Moved back in September 1st. Everything's ready to go. September 11th happens. We're on a flight. We get to Memphis. They cancel the flight. We're like, man, we're going to miss our very first client call. Very first, when we're staying with friends, for so we're on the cheap, right? We don't have any money. We walk into a, 
uh, a little cafe. Henry and I do. So we'll I sit down and have a cup of coffee until we see when the flight comes back in. And we watch the second plane hit the World Trade Center. So our business started September 1st. Their first business call was September 11th. And you've all for six months, no one was talking to anyone. I mean, we literally jumped in a rental car with a friend and drove back six hours from Memphis listening to the whole world change on AM radio. It was crazy. So all the plans we had, all these great visions, we literally sat around for six months and had a lot of lunches and continued to vision. Now, mm. that being said, you got to work hard. You got to prep. Uh, other people didn't know what they're doing. So we had tremendous relationships we started to build, but there was, uh, there was no money changing hands. So now you've got to go to your father-in-law and say, well, you know, that nice job that I had to take care of your daughter and your grandkids, it's not working out so well, but we're going to be okay. All your friends are like, are you going to come back to PNG? I'm like, no, we're not going to come back to PNG. We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. And after about six months, by really the spring, summer, things started to turn and we could see the light again, but it was a really hard startup. It's, it's unlike anything you've you ever imagined because you were living at that, you know, through that phase. But imagine being nine days into your startup. It was crazy. Yeah, we have a similar path. I started Luvala, my skincare line, in 2006, 2007. Yep. And the 2008 financial crisis completely devastated my chances of success. You know, like you, I don't believe Field Agent would exist without Northstar, right? Exactly right. I think the same thing with ProMash. I wouldn't. So I, I don't look at Luvala and, you know, losing my retail distribution in Luvala as, as failure. I look at it as just a transition over to the next stage on my path, right? And I think, I think that's the same way for you. So, you know, when I started my, my first company, my wife, she's an actress, she was very supportive uh, at the time. Uh, she was young. I was young. I was only 29 at that time. Yeah. But she had no fucking idea what she was getting into, you know? In, in turn, over the years, though, it got very difficult for her, I think. Um, and I believe you were married when you started your first company, right? So how did your wife take it? Was she initially supportive? Did she change, you know, when she understood what was really, you know, taking place and, and, and what it really means to be an entrepreneur and, and birth a company from the ground up? Yeah, so a couple of things for us. Number one, we were moving, we, we had lived in Florida for a few years, lived in Asia. And when we moved back to the States, we both moved into a location that we only knew two or three people. So no network, no engagement. We've got three young kids, new school. So it's all new. And I originally started out saying, hey, let's spend two or three years. Let's give it a couple of three years. Let's, let's go drive it. I was coming in as the operations, the guy's going to run the companies. Bill was more of the salesperson, great client face, really, really great with clients and understood the market. Henry's the strategy guy, was really mapping things out, again, great with clients. Nice. And I was running the machine and I was running all these entities. So I thought that was going to be the case. So when Kim looked at it, it's like, listen, we could do anything. We just left Asia. We do anything for a couple of three years. And then we started the machine and really grew to love this area and everything was great. And so I'll take you to my, then 2008. So Kim started running the research company. She started coming back in part-time, and she was an integral part of that. Uh, all of our kids then were in school, so she's working part-time. Uh, and then 2008, 2009, uh, Yuval, I represent The Big Short. Have you seen the movie, The Big Short? I did, yeah. But Okay, you're looking at one of those guys. So mm. Rick is one of these guys on your your podcast here, the A in 2001 experience, 2011, you know, 9-11. It's really, really bad. I also came through that financial crisis and had to file personal bankruptcy. 
Wow. So I'm one of these guys saying, hey, great. I didn't know that about Rick. I'm going to Google it and see what it says, right? And so what happened in our world, the business is rocking. Everything's great. I get a couple of buddies over here that said, listen, we've got this great piece of property. We're going to develop it. We were building a building at the time. So we're going to build a building for North Star. And we're going to drive this thing. He said, why don't you just sign up for like 10% of this property? And you could reap in that. It'll sell you a lot pretty cheap. It was great. About a year or so later, the real estate crisis happened. Hmm. So I'm a 10% owner. The first developer went under. The second developer went under. And guess who's holding the bag? Wow. Right here. So now my building's worth X. And about every three months, it was worth 10% less. And I'm trying to close on a construction loan. I couldn't close. I couldn't close. More auditors were coming in, putting more pressure to put in more dollars to make the valuation right. The dirt went from $21 a square foot to 19 to 18 to 17 to 12 to 9 and we bought it at 10 Everything's mm. underwater, and everybody wants a piece of me. And I'm like, whoa, I just remember those pictures of us at the ball game. Remember us with the golden shovel? Remember all the, oh, yeah. the parties and the, the great courting that happened? Remember the documents we all signed? And like, yeah, um, we remember all that, but you signed for the 10%. These guys are gone. You now owe 100%. And I, I couldn't get out from under it. I, I, and, and then the more I engaged with people of faith and then my bankruptcy attorney who said, Rick, you're a business person. You have no personal debt. You didn't take money and go to Puerto Vallarta. I mean, all the money went in dirt in a building. Try to turn the keys back in. So, hey, you can have the building, have the dirt back. And we waited so long, and it was it was starting to affect the business because I'm taking every dime out I can to go pay this interest. That that eventually said, you know, we don't want the dirt, we don't want the building, we want your dog, your house. So they went after you personally. After personally, you reach a point where I asked how my wife was doing. My wife is selling jewelry. We're selling cars. We're we're selling everything we can, and I've got really smart people. You've all saying, Rick. All roads lead to bankruptcy. Stop selling stuff. You're, you're never going to get out from under this because the crisis was so bad, as you know. I mean, there was no money exchanging hands. This dirt was just sitting there, and the interest went from whatever percent. It almost doubled in interest because as the liability went up, the interest rate went up. So it was just a crazy, crazy time. And so had to now tell my mom and my father-in-law and mother-in-law and my brother and my aunt. Hey, I'm, you're going to hear about this. We're filing bankruptcy. We're going to be able to figure out a way to keep our house. Kids and clothes are okay. We had to sell everything else we own. But the good news is, got my health, got my family, and the businesses are all rocking. So as you know, as bankruptcy comes in, the next day we recalibrated, launched new LLCs, and started driving forward. But that's that was almost 10 years ago. Really, really hard time. And when you watch that movie, you realize... Rick represented zero down. Everyone's your buddy. It was the easiest money in the world. I was a fool because I didn't stay focused on what I was good at, which is driving business. I was dabbling in real estate and I and I signed things I should have never, ever signed. So lesson learned for me, uh, but made, made it out okay. So is that your advice to the entrepreneur? Stay in your lane? Yeah. You know, listen, I, I, I think it's to be significant Okay, you have to stay within your rails and head north. Okay, chasing shiny objects are really, really bad as an entrepreneur. And so I tell people all the time, it's like, listen, your rails can move maybe five or 10% here or there. But when you make an immediate right or left, I'm like, what are you thinking? 
I mean, anyone can chase shiny objects. You're trying to build something. So to build a brand, to build an enterprise, to build a team, you've got to stay within your rails. Now, there will be times you could start something new, but chasing shiny objects are bad. And so the example I give them, and once I tell the story of chasing real estate, the shiny object, their eyes are wide open. They're like, oh, my gosh. I said, now, take that same analogy where you're a great CPG brand. And someone says, hey, why don't you get involved? in this new marketing agency thing over here. I'm like, what are you doing? Hey, would you go invest in this real estate? Hey, would you go invest in this? I'm like, stop it. What do you know about food? Why are you opening a restaurant? I've got all this cash flow, man. I'm going to go open a restaurant. It's awesome. It's going to have my name on it. I said, stop chasing shiny objects. Stay in your lane and let that lane grow a little bit. Let clients drive you. So that's that. I preach that all the time with, with folks that I'm coaching, people that I'm mentoring. I remember the time, and I think you'll relate to when I say this, this probably no worse feeling than sitting with your wife in front of a bankruptcy attorney. Oh. I remember sitting there with her and this guy looked at me. This was before we got to the bankruptcy attorney. This is the, the banks coming at us. And he, it's, it seems like a, I always do kind of the, the movie theme. So if you've ever watched uh, Jerry Maguire and the guy says, my, my, woods, my words is good as oak, man. You don't need a signature. And the guy looked at me and he said, hey, Rick, you said you're a good Christian guy and people should believe you. I see your signature right there. It looks to me like you're a liar. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. So well, doesn't your word mean anything? And my wife's sitting there. And I said, you need to back that up, man. You need to back that up because your signature of your bank is there too. And he said, well, I'm just saying your signature should mean something. And I guess it doesn't. So I know what kind of person you are. I mean, that's how personal yeah. you know, those things are. Now, in fairness, he, he's the bad cop. The good cop would come in. I love you, man. We're all, and he was just doing his job because he was trying to get me to crack. So I didn't, you take it personally, but you back up and realize it's nothing personal. I get what he was trying to do. But to sit there with your wife and she's looking at you, saying, what have you gotten into? Now, you fast forward 10, 12 years, I'm a debt-free guy. I'm not signing anything. Really, really focused on, on what we have to do. And there's a freeing part of that. But 10 years ago, it was just way too good to be true. And when it's too good to be true, you've all, it's too good to be true. Yeah, there are, there are two moments that you'll never forget. Sitting in front of a bankruptcy attorney and the day that you have zero debt after you paid everything off. I remember both of those well. And I do as well. So there are many entrepreneurs out there who are thinking, like you and I, to jump ship, jump the corporate ship and start their own company. What advice, uh, or I mean warning, I mean advice, uh, advice, <laughs> would you give them? Yeah, I, I start out by saying that everyone thinks they have a really good idea. It's, it's the, I'm so smart, I've got this idea, or I've been passionate about this. And it's that analogy of everyone thinks their baby is really cute, right? You got a beautiful baby. Listen, you've all, you and I both know that 90% of babies look like aliens. There's like <laughs> 10% or 2% that are cute. And even yes. they're still alien looking cute, right? There's very yes. few cute babies, but everyone thinks they're cute. That's the same analogy that I use for businesses. I have this great business. I'm like, that's brutal, man. You think it's really good. So the first advice I give people is that if you think you have a good opportunity in front of you, the first thing you do is go to strangers. You pitch the idea. You can't keep talking to mom, dad, brother, good friend that would never tell you anything other than you're great. You got to go do that. The second thing is, and this is the best advice I was ever giving you all, ever. Every every entrepreneur is to hear this one. We were getting ready to start. We're about a, you know about a weekend before we made the big trip down. He said, he said, listen to this. You are as an entrepreneur, you are only as good 
as you invoice and collect. If you can't do that, you're starting an expensive hobby. And this is by Dr. Steve Graves, great advice. And so the second thing I tell people is that if you think you've got a good idea, you got your MVP, you got some product, if you can't convince a stranger to buy it, what makes you think this is anything other than expensive hobby? So the two things, number one, do not take your own advice. Don't, you got to get off the pedestal. You got to find a complete stranger to see what they think. And if they tell you good idea, you take the feedback. If you can convince a total stranger to buy it, then I say, let's have a conversation. We'll figure out how to scale this thing. But most people say, look at my great idea. I need money to scale it. I said, have you sold it? No. Have you talked to any strangers? No. But man, look how cool this is. So those are the first two. The third piece is, if you truly believe you're solving a problem, then I think regardless of how the product looks, then I think it's worth having a conversation. Because even though your solution to the problem may not be the right idea, the fact that you know there's a problem to be solved and you're smart and you know that industry, like I came from CPG and I knew the problem I was solving, if you can stay within those rails of solving that problem and resist doing cute things, if you're willing to work, whether it's a month, six months down the road, you will eventually find a way to solve that problem. And then when that happens, get good advice from strangers and see if you can't sell it. So those are three core things that when I have a whiteboard, I take everyone through. And it, it, it makes a few people cringe and a few people never talk to me again because they don't want me to call their baby ugly. I think that it was absolutely spot on, everything you just said. As an entrepreneur, the really, really great ones don't sell the features of their MVP. The ones that go out and sell the value and solve a problem will understand the features over time. Right. If you build features, you're building a product. If you build value, your MVP can grow into a feature-rich product. And that's something that I've learned you know, over the years, especially as a salesperson, because as a founder, guess what? You're a salesperson. So that's, that's, really that's what it is. Yeah. I tell you, along those same lines, it's, it's difficult once you get started. And again, let's say if someone's coming to me with, hey, I've been selling for a while and I have got this, this product, and I'm trying to scale it. Um, and this isn't for me. This is, you know, pick a good book. 20 other people said this, but there's such a difference between a favor and a feature. Mm. And so you've got this product and you've got your three best clients and they keep asking for all these features. And I'm like, they're not asking for features. They're asking for favors. Yep. Because in their unique business proposition, they need you to change your product. That has nothing to do with scaling it to 10,000 other people. And they're like, oh, no, no, but, but I can take that feature and I can scale it. I said, have you talked to your other? Well, they don't need it, but somebody might need it. I said, no, 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 no. It's okay for your best client to do a favor and call it that and be okay with it. But just because they ask for it doesn't mean you can scale it. A feature means that you've looked across a cohort and it meets the need or solves the problem for a cohort, and that's a key feature to drive your product. And I'm not saying don't do the favor, because if, it, if somebody represents 30, 40% of your volume, do some favors. And maybe you're lucky that it's a feature everyone needs. But the moment yep. you understand that, like, oh, I've got to take care of my core client and keep doing favors, but that dev and those engineers working on that, I still have to go work on features for the masses. And so oftentimes we just assume our best clients whatever they want, everyone else wants. And that's a common mistake I see with entrepreneurs, especially with products. Brother, I've been there as someone that owns a, a tech company. Uh, many, many arguments with the CTO and my co-founder because 
as a founder and you're speaking on the sales side to clients, you want to solve their need and you also believe that, wow, that's a great feature. Everybody's going to want to use it. And I can't tell you how many times we built a feature, spent tens or if not hundreds of thousands of dollars and literally five clients used it and no one else used it. So you're right. I love that. I love favor. That's fantastic. So let's switch topics a little bit. So I created the seven hats to remind entrepreneurs to focus on other critical areas of their life so that they don't burn out, you know, just trying to chase achievement without fulfillment. And I especially focus on hat number two, the athlete, which is the health and wellness hat. I understand that you were one of those statistics and you crashed and burned at a very critical time in your business. So can you tell us about that time and what did you learn from it? Yeah, so if you think about our our journey into entrepreneurship, uh, it it was probably seven years or so ago. Uh, it just had our Series A. Then we had a follow on investment from Five Elms Capital. Uh, we had cash coming in. We're driving like crazy. Everything is scaling. We've expanded to a couple of countries. We're going from twelve people to twenty to thirty to fifty. I mean, everything is changing. Organization is driving. And I had health issue A. Without getting into details, let's call it health issue A. Mm-hmm. And I had a, the the doctor's nurse call me and said, hey, Rick, could you and Kim stop by this evening after hours? Dr. So-and-so would like to talk to you. She said, don't worry, it's not cancer. I went, okay. So I show up in his office with my wife. He's there with his partner and three nurses. They're all sitting in a room. And he looks at me and says, Rick, Kim is here because you're not going to hear a word I say. I'm like, and he was a neighbor. I mean, I knew this guy. He's like, trust me. He said, so Kim, I'm looking at Rick, but I'm really talking to you because he's not going to hear a word I, I say. He said, Rick, you have this rare autoimmune disease. He said, autoimmune diseases can never be healed. We can manage symptoms. And I said, I, I said, Rick, I need you to listen. You're already not listening to me. Rick, he said, Kim, what did I just say? She said, he'll never be healed. He said, right. For Mr. Entrepreneur strategy, get it. Fi- Rick is not going to fix this. So I sat back in the chair. I'm like, oh, well, I, but he said, listen to me, okay? Number two, you're one in 1.2 million, and 70% of the people that have this are women. So there's like 90 active cases of this in the United States. So no one's working on this. No one's studying it. No pharma company cares because there's 300 people and you're one of 90 guys. No one cares. I'm like, but he's, he's Rick, you can Google. I'm just telling you, no one cares. Okay, number three. He said, uh, let's talk about your lifestyle. He said, I know you pretty well. He said, are you getting enough sleep? I was like, oh, yeah. And Kim's like, she's rolled her eyes. And I said, well, I get plenty of sleep. He said, well, describe your evening. I said, well, I you know, go home at 530 or so. I, I have dinner at home every night with Kim and the kids. I never missed a dinner unless I was traveling. Go out and do, maybe do sports, whatever. We come back, we do homework. Kim's an early, go to early bed. Then I kick in around 10 o'clock for that second win because I'm a second win kind of guy. Worked around 12 or 1, get up the next day, 6 o'clock, go work out, get the day started. He went, those days are over. I said, what do you mean? He said, they are over. Number one is that this autoimmune thing kicks in. Lack of sleep creates stress. You're done. You're going to get at least seven and a half, preferably eight hours of sleep a night. And I said, that's over. He said, Rick, you're not listening to me. Kim, he's going to start getting eight hours of sleep. He's going to go to bed. And I said, okay. So he said, are you stressed? I'm like, oh, no. She's like, oh, my gosh. Stressed? He's completely stressed. Although I said, I'm not stressed. He went, Rick. He said, stress causes this. So lack of sleep and stress makes you sick. 
and the autoimmune kicks in at boom, boom, and boom. And I bet it's, it's, you're not listening. So, so all that made, we had a few more questions, but we finished that session. So now I have to go to my board of directors, my partners, and say, here's the reality. I can't keep cranking the hours that I was cranking. I've got to step back. This isn't going to kill me, but it's going to make my life miserable. And a couple of them were like, well, we're wondering when you're going to, you know, <laughs> realize that you couldn't keep burning it the way you are. Then about a year or so later, uh, autoimmunes ran in pairs. I had a second one, completely unrelated, but second. Then I had a third autoimmune. Wow. And they were all, so I was still, I was getting healthier. But, but all that being said, it took about three years. And finally, I realized I've got to lose weight. I, and I was not bad, but I've got to sleep. I've got to start eating and I've got to reduce the stress or I'm not going to live a long, healthy life. And what also allowed me to do by, by having that kind of crisis, health crisis in front of me, it allowed me to build a team in a different way. It allowed me to actually be able to come in and be able to delegate and encourage others. And so it was a net win for everyone, but it was just the reality that was in front of me. Wow. And did you set up some sort of routine, evening routine, morning routine in order to help you or? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, listen, I'm a process guy, creature of habit. And so I, if you looked at my phone right now at nine 30, it says, get ready to go to bed. I'm like, really? Cause mental, I'm like, okay, you got to get ready. So by 10 o'clock I'm approaching by 10 30, I'm asleep. And then I'm up by six, six 30. I'm trying to get that eight hours in. So little simple things like that. But I guess more importantly, as you think about the the process of being healthy, I looked at health as I'm working out, running, biking. I, I could take on the world. I didn't look at the mental health and the, the sleep or the stress-related health as being a complete healthy Rick. It was really more of I could run, walk, compete with the best of them. And I realized that was not going to be the long term because when you go from 45 to 50, then 55, you realize, gosh, that's not at all what complete health is. Complete health yep. is mind and body and soul. And I just wasn't looking at it that way because I thought I can I can outrun, outlive, outwork because that was my background as a kid, right? You work hard, you work yep. harder than the next guy. And you just realize you can't keep burning that way and be the best self you can be. Yeah. To all the seven hatters listening, Rick and I have been there. So we're just going to start there. And for all of you thinking that, oh, I'm just going to grind for the next five years, get the business up and, you know, make a bunch of money and then take care of my health or my finances or my spiritual connection or myself. Don't do it, please, because you're never going to get there. And when you do, you'll, you'll feel completely unfulfilled and it's hard to start later. Do it now. Find some time. You know, you said something that's really awesome to me, which, which I now quote. Um, all day long. I asked you, is there such a th thing as a balanced life, work-life balance? And you said, no, there's no such thing as balance. What did you say? There's no such thing. It's that if you look at the, the seesaw teeter-totter of life, is that I think I have this work-life balance and I have crisis at home. Therefore, home takes the seesaw up. Wait a minute, there's a, a crisis at work. It takes the seesaw. So there's no such thing as balance. The, the opportune way to look at this is, is that how can I engage in a way that when the seesaw goes up and down, I have the right processes, margin, capacity to handle the ups and downs? Because a completely flat life 
A, is unobtainable, and B, who wants to live that life? I mean, you want to live the high of highs of your family, and my daughter gets married, and I want to go sway over here, and I'm way over-focused on the marriage, and I'm way over-focused on my grandkids, and I'm way over-focused on the Series A with the business, and I'm way over-focused on the launch. Well, those ebbs and flows are fantastic, and people are like, oh, no, you should have equal balance. I said, well, first of all, it's not two things. It's like 10 things. Yep. Well, then you should juggle that. So well, that's, just, that's ridiculous. So there's no such thing as balance. It's being a part of the balancing, and you need to have enough margin to go after. And so I, I tell, especially young guys that have a family, I talk about making deposits into the emotional bank account of life. And this happened with my wife. And I realized pretty quick is that if I didn't have enough deposits in the emotional bank account with her, when I was an idiot, had to work late hours, I had to have something to pull from, right? And eventually when that deposit goes from 10 to 9 to 8 to 3 to 2 to 1 to 0, she's looking at me like, you've done nothing to pour in over here. And I realized, oh, that was bad. So, the, so the, the deposits of emotional bank account for your team, for your board, for your friends, your family, your spouse, you've got to be able to make those deposits over time because when you have to chase after the seesaw that goes down, and you will, you have a crisis at work. You have my wife had breast cancer, thought I was going to lose her. And for months when she was going through chemo, my team rallied around me. I had one focus in life was to make sure my wife wasn't going to die. She was going to be okay. But I have invested so much in the team that I was pulling from those deposits. Everything was okay. So those crises will happen in life. You just can't be all things to all people. So the balancing thing is ridiculous. It's, it'll never happen. It's a balancing act and only someone who's been sucking their thumb in fetal position, crying in, on the bathroom floor many, many times could actually verbalize what you just said. So speaking of sucking your thumb in fetal position, let's talk about the black swans in the room. So you've braved through 9-11, the financial meltdown, and of course, our friend COVID. Yeah. How did each, briefly, how did each impact you and your business? And what did you learn from each of those experiences? Yeah, I think the 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 9-11, since it happened so early in my career as an entrepreneur, um, I, I think it taught me the fortitude or the the willingness to stay, the steadfastness to know that I knew the idea was right. And I and no matter who I talked to, strangers said, yes, what you're building is solving a solution. And therefore it gave me the the patience and the stamina to weather the storm before we even got started. I think had the idea been wishy-washy and kind of interesting, listen, 30 days later, I'd have quit taking a job and provided for my family. But I knew, I mean, I knew in my heart of hearts, and I knew practically after talking to people, the right thing to do. So that's how it impacted me is that for the right thing, stay the course, it's going to be the right thing you know, it, it, at some point in time. I think the, the financial crisis was just your bankruptcy attorney looking at you as like, you idiot. You're excellent at what you do. Who told you you're a real estate mogul? And I just realized, which is why I use the shiny object piece, is that I knew better. It was one of those when your parents say, well, you're going to touch it. It's hot. Don't touch it. It's hot. And you touch it. You're like, oh, my gosh, I just scalded my hand. And your mom says, "Uh, I told you it was hot. And so I just realized, man, I'm never going to let, and I say never, never such a long time, you all. But I'm not going to allow that to happen again. I'm going to stay away from those shiny objects because I know better. 
And that reinforced as an adult that I'm not invincible, that it is going to burn me. You fast forward kind of into this, this COVID area, uh, this COVID time. I think if I've learned anything over this time is that having a business and a culture that is healthy allows you to move and navigate a new world. Had we not been healthy, both financially and from a culture standpoint, I don't know how we would have lived through it. Because if we've learned anything over COVID, it's easy to manage work remotely. It's hard to maintain and manage and grow a culture. And so what we benefited from is have really, really strong culture, manage through that. And now that we come out on the other side of it, uh, now we're saying, gosh, we're going to continue to grow and expand versus having to start all over. Uh, I don't think we could have done that had we not been strong financially and strong from a culture standpoint, because either one of those I've seen would just kind of break companies because they just can't maintain what they have to do because we've realized that this COVID thing, and it's not my analogy, it's another analogy, but COVID wasn't a snowstorm. It wasn't an ice storm. COVID is an ice age. And an ice Mm. age says there's ice in Antarctica and Newfoundland and Iceland that wasn't there 10 million years ago because it was the tropic. With COVID relating to working remote, understand how people are going to buy, how they're going to engage, it's an ice age, which means until we have another catastrophic event, I don't think things are going to change because I thought it was a snowstorm. I hoped it was an ice storm. This is an ice age. And so we're, we're having to learn to move from that. But thank goodness we had a good culture and good business behind of it. Yeah, I so relate because you and I are in the same industry. We actually have very, very similar products out in the market. Uh, we do different things, but it's, it's in the same space. So COVID potentially for at least 12 months or even 18 months decimated the events industry, the, the retail industry. Nobody was going out and taking photos and asking, you know, for secret shoppers. I mean, all of no. that was, was completely decimated. And I agree, if you and I did not have a culture that was exceptional, we would have lost the best people on our team. And you know what? They stayed, they fought with us. We were all in it together and now we're just stronger on the other side. So I, you know, God bless you. But it's funny because you said, you know, the ice age and the catastrophe that's coming again, it's going to come again. So what, what advice do you have for those that maybe haven't experienced the next black swan, right? That currently maybe just starting their business. They, they know that terrible things happen, but they haven't experienced running a business through a calamity like that. So what would you say would be your advice to someone who's going to be looking for the next black swan? It's coming for sure, guys. Just remember that. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the, the new person starting out that is putting everything they own. They sold everything. They, all their savings they're putting into this egg. Or the pregame to this this opportunity, right? It's to put all your eggs in one basket. I, I tell them that you cannot live waiting for the next black swan. You have to lean in and you have to drive just like nothing's going to happen. Because if you don't and you keep wondering and wondering and preparing, preparing, you are not an entrepreneur. Go back and get a job. Don't do it. I mean, you, you, you cannot live your life wondering and wondering. You're going to stress out and you're never going to be all in because, oh, well, I need a backup. I need a backup. An entrepreneur... For mo- in most cases, you all, you don't have a backup. I mean, you are leaning in and this is what you're focused on. So that would be advice number one. You got to be okay. And if it all falls apart, go get a job and be okay with it. But you've got to be all in. 
Then you get the folks that have been up and running for two or three years. They're finally starting to scale. Like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I, I think planning is important. Uh, you've got to be prepared to ask the hard questions that if the machine stalled, if the black swan happened, what can I do to either right size, right price, right whatever, so that I can sustain my business through this turbulent time? And it's the it's mm-hmm. the question that no entrepreneur wants to hear. No one wants to hear about downsizing. No one wants to hear about, well, I have to change my model. No one wants to hear about, I have to take my pricing down to where no one's going to get paid anything. I reduce, I reduce um, salaries by 20% and I reduce, I mean, you have to think, you don't want to plan for it because that's this, you, you're, you're expecting your, your glass half empty guy. But I'm saying you have to understand that when it happens, if you're working on the right thing, it's the right vision, it's the right model, and you just have to survive, you have to realize the entity needs to survive. And you've got to make really, really tough decisions, and, and you've got to be prepared for that. And then there's the one that's just soared along, driving like crazy. My encouragement there, and we were able to do this in a couple of cases. Be prepared to reach out to those in need around you and be able to provide. So you got a cleaning company, keep paying the cleaning company. You got to keep doing that. You have four other service providers. Negotiate a deal to where you don't go to zero because your your business is still real tight. And how do you keep you know providing you know services there? You're not going to go back in your building, work with your landlord. I mean, th- those are the kind of things that if you're robust enough, giving and helping other services and services providers around you. If you're catering in once a week for your employees, you're buying snacks from the local guy, how can you have those delivered to someone's home? I mean, that's giving back. So there's really three entities, starting up kind of early on in the process and someone that's really rocking over here. I think in each one of those cases, we have roles we can play. Such wise advice. You know, I think, Rick, we, we covered, I think, every hat out of the seven during this interview. So I'd like to close out my interviews with the following question. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? I had to stop being the knower. I know, I know, I know I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. Um, I would argue if you look at whether you're taking a strengths test and I can see things, you can look at an Enneagram test, a Myers-Briggs. I truly believe that God has allowed me to see things and I can be in a creative session or a strategy session, and I can just see where we need to go. The problem with that is everyone just sits around waiting for Rick to speak. You're not building capacity. You're not building anything. And so what I've, I've learned to do is that there are opportunistic times that I still need to be the guy in the front of the boardroom, in front of the screen, in front of the whiteboard, making the decisions and driving it. The person that I had to become was more of an encourager to realize that my words are like a thousand pounds and I have to back that up. Even to the point you've off, if I'm like, I'm using my hands now, when I get into meetings today, I will literally sit on my hands. And when I get ready to talk and I feel my hands, it's telling me, why do you need to solve that problem right now? Stop it. Let the the team is going to end up in a good place. Now, there are times I have to jump in and say, wrong, when we're not going down that path, right? But what I've learned over time to the person I've become I'm much more of an encourager than a knower telling. Now, I listen, I still default, and people will tell you, oh, Rick, he's going to tell us what we need to do. But, but I try to back that off, and I, it's, I think it's made me a more well-rounded leader. But at the same time, not using my gift is unfair to the team because that's why they came to the company. That's why we're going down this path. 
And that's why the investors gave us cash, because Rick and Henry were driving this machine. But I got 100 people right now. And I need the 100 people to be on top of their business, to feel autonomous, to go drive. And so that's been really, really hard for me. But I've done a better job, A, because of my health. Okay, I've had to do it. And B, I've realized in order to scale this thing the way we need to scale it, I've got to back off and quit being the guy. It's in front of the room all the time. I love that. Tell the seven hatters what you're currently up to and where they can connect with you. You know, I'm, I'm a LinkedIn guy. You know, I'd love to say jump on social media, but if it's not a birthday or a hol- or anniversary, I'm probably not on social media that much these days. Uh, get me on LinkedIn. It's, it's Rick West. I'm the field agent guy. It's easy to find me. Uh, DM me. Would love to talk. You'd be surprised how quickly I would respond and strike up a conversation. You've all just like this, whether it's on business or life. Uh, would love to come alongside someone and be able to give back in that way. And then obviously from a business standpoint, we have a great marketplace that solves retail solutions. If you got problems, it solves retail problems for solutions. Go to fieldagent.net, shop around a little bit. Would love to hear what you think about our marketplace and would love to help out. Rick, it was a pleasure having you in the Seven Hats. I know you and I are going to continue building this relationship and I will do everything I can to promote and expose your baby, your pretty baby now, because pretty you baby. don't have a hundred, you don't have a hundred uh, team members unless your baby is pretty. So congratulations on all your success. Thank you for wanting to give back and help entrepreneurs do better. And I look forward to continuing our relationship. Thanks again for the seven hats. Okay. You've all until next time. Thanks, man. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rick. Let's end today with a segment of the show that I refer to as What can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. Rick and I share a similar entrepreneurial rollercoaster ride through several Black Swan events. As a mentor, I'm often asked how to navigate the next cataclysmic event that's about to rock our world. Rick calls it the next ice age. Now, many of you might not believe that this event is in your future, but trust me, it's coming. So how do we prepare as entrepreneurs? Well, Rick delivers some sound advice that breaks it down like this. For you newbies, just getting your feet wet, don't plan, execute and learn every step of the way. As an entrepreneur, you're an inherent risk taker. And if you try to plan for major catastrophic events in the future, you will thwart your creativity. And more importantly, fear will get in the way of execution. So just do it as Nike tells us. For those who have a real business on their hands, make sure to plan by setting process and systems in place while potentially running through some war games to guesstimate what will happen in the short term if your business stalls. It happened to Rick and me during COVID. We're in the CPG retail and event space, and since no events were to be had, guess what happened? Our business is stalled. We could have suffered irreversible damages if we didn't have the capital, culture, systems, and processes in place. But thankfully, we pulled through. And for you veterans out there who built grand enterprises, Rick believes that you have a moral obligation to give back and help support small business vendors that might rely on you to survive. Remember who helped you on the way up. It might be time to put on hat number six, the philanthropist hat, and give back to others who need it most. I want to thank Rick once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so that we can attract even more high-quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, 
My name is Yuval Selleck, and I tip my hat to you.